there's a fearlessness emerging from the most successful brands where they're less beholden to where they were and they trust in data in a way that lets them move forward and not hide from risk. And they just don't care. They don't have 30 years of CPG advertising that says ads look like this and do that and then this works. And so they just are vomiting stuff. Let's try this and let's try that and let's try this. And it's amazing from a global perspective because you see these markets where they just don't care. I mean, the fearless markets. And so you see these things that don't look like ads or combined content in weird ways. And the people who are deciding don't have in their mind a preconceived sense of what an ad is or how it works. They just want whatever works. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. I will live every day as if there were a microphone tucked under my tongue. It's great to get in the game, but don't get in the game until you understand the rules till you're an insider. Your life changes when you begin having a different conversation in your head. What we need to do in radically deep problems is propose radically visionary solutions. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence or people who live at the frontier of the next world of influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. Now, here's today's question. What is pink noise? pink noise. Now we've all heard about white noise and if you've been listening to the podcast for a long time you will have heard us refer to white noise from a variety of different angles and white noise is basically the words, the keywords, phrases, stories and marketing messages in your space that everybody uses. It's the ones that make you sound if you use them exactly the same as everybody else. It's the tidal wave of noise that we can so easily get lost within when we're trying to step up and own our space. Basically, the elevator music of influence. So what is pink noise? Well, it's kind of the opposite. Think of the last Netflix series that you dedicated 24 hours of your life to binging or the influencer that you currently faithfully follow. Combine that with cutting edge data, throw in some vibes, more on that later, And you have got a whole new world of post-COVID unskippable storytelling. Lost yet? Don't worry, it's all going to become clear. To help translate this new world of storytelling, including Pink Noise, I enlisted third-time guest and long-time favourite of the podcast, the incredible Ben Jones. Ben Jones is the creative director at Google and head of Unskippable Labs. Now, Unskippable Labs is a team within Google designated with the huge task of studying the 5 billion hours of videos that are uploaded onto YouTube every single day, 5 billion of them. Their mission, to work out exactly what makes us press or not press the skip button. You know the skip button on YouTube in the bottom right-hand corner of the screen? What makes us press that and what makes us keep watching? So basically, essentially their entire job is to decode in real time the stories that are attracting and keeping the attention of their 30 million visitors a day. That's an awful lot of knowledge. Now, in this conversation, we jump straight into, this is our third conversation, so we just, we went straight for it. We talk about storytelling in a post-COVID world. 
how our screen behavior has changed and how many of those changes are sticking around. We talk about the vortex of time, how to make sense of a world where we are so happy to binge season after season of our favorite show. Crazy fact, Amazon now spends more money on content than Paramount Studios. And yet micro content apps like TikTok are still exploding. The power of vibing. <laughs> this was one of my favorite parts. Power of vibes. Why we seem to be becoming less interested in what you have to say and more interested in the exact flavor of how you say it. Hint here that flavor should not be vanilla. We talk about the future of creativity, how to trust your instincts as a creator while still making effective data-driven decisions because we are in a world now where we can make fast, very specific data-driven decisions on any given day. The problem being that sometimes, unless we also listen to our instincts, they can take us in the wrong direction. And finally, quick time versus slow time. The importance of keeping one foot in the frothy present and one foot in the larger cycles of life. Now, I've, I've said this before many times. I love having people back the second or third time on the podcast. It's always a chance for me to be able to take the conversation in a, in a way that is the road less traveled. Exploring ideas beneath the surface of their work and touching on questions that they're currently wrestling with as opposed to the ones that they might be more known for. And what I loved about this conversation is how open Ben is and has always been in the years since we first connected to completely changing his perspective. He's someone who manages to hold lightly onto his predictions, onto what he believes about what works, what might work and what definitely won't work. And instead, he holds tightly onto keeping an experimental mindset, test after test, experiment after experiment, breadcrumb after breadcrumb. And by viewing the future as this vast, uncharted territory, he's somehow able to approach every single change and pivot, not with a sense of exhaustion and defeat, but with a consistent sense of wonder and curiosity. And I think that was my biggest lesson from this conversation. Less energy on predicting what might work, fantasizing about what might work, catastrophizing about what might work, and more energy on actually finding out. Now, for those of you who want to actively find out what it takes to take your journey in influence to the next level, to be seen as an expert in your field, to drive a conversation, to use your voice to build a business, don't forget to hop onto my website or the show notes and download the latest version of my ebook, The Influencer Code. It covers the seven core strategies and seven questions that I have found hands down in over 20 years to be the most powerful when it comes to fast tracking your level of influence. Just pop in your email address and it will appear straight into your inbox. On that note, sit back, scroll slowly or not at all if you're driving and welcome onto the podcast, my personal Yoda of digital storytelling, Ben Jones. Welcome back to the podcast, Ben Jones. Great to be here. Good to see you again. It's so good to have you back. We were just reminiscing about the first time we talked and I was so excited to have you on the show. And as it turned out, I was due to be, I was in Bali on that particular day and it was a huge storm in Bali. 
one of those once in a year things and the Wi-Fi went down and I had to walk around the back streets of Bali. I remember I bought a SIM card off this strange old man with no teeth. I'm not, I'm not joking. And <laughs> ran back to the hotel in the rain in order to make our interview work. And you were in the middle of a blizzard. Yeah, it was I'm in Boston. I think it was the the snowiest record in his, uh, winter in history. And we had this the the sidewalks were heaped up so high they were like little corridors, and we were getting even more snow that night. So storm on your side and storm on my side. Wow. Well, here we are again, three or four years later, and I'm in the middle of uh, the Sydney floods right now, the Australia floods. So there's something about you, me. And weather events. I don't know what it is. Meteorology. Is happening. <laughs> we just have this kind of global impact on weather systems. Well, welcome. And there's so much I want to talk to you about. I feel like every time I feel like every time I talk to you, the world of digital storytelling, online storytelling, human attention has just leapt another kind of quantum leap but in a direction that we kind of half anticipated but then it pivots in the middle and goes in a direction that none of us anticipated so let's start with let's start with the usual question that I'm asking at, at the moment which is is there one idea or trend that you are noticing right now that's having a big influence on your thinking so there is a phrase that seems stuck in my head right now that I just can't get beyond. Uh, and every time I look at another problem through the lens of it, 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 it sticks again. And that is the world is made of what you love. And I think for me, it's sort of attention, but it's, but it's not. And I think about digital platforms as this combination of signals and algorithms, and they are, they are conspiring to bring around you the things that you most want. And so, you know, in a, in a digital content world, the thing that your world in some ways is made up of what you love and what you love, it's not all intentional, right? It's what shows up is what you're choosing to pay attention to. And so if it's your YouTube feed or TikTok, you're seeing a reflection of yourself and what you choose to pay attention to. And so it fills with, you know, some things that you would expect and some things may be unexpected. Uh, and that then ripples out for me into... Uh, the way that you can support creators, you know, you can support them indirectly by watching their shows, but you can support them directly through platforms like Patreon and so on. And I think the most interesting thing for me about COVID and post-COVID is it was a shock that reset our patterns and we're being intentional about what we let back in. And so we were just talking about work. Your work is filled in a different way with what you love, with where you want to be and how you want to spend your time. And, you know, the great resignation is a reconsideration of what your what your time is worth. Uh, and I think about it in terms of, I mean, it's a, a terrible moment in world events right now. And so how do you express that love and how are you making that real in the world? And I think what's happening right now with Airbnb, people booking Airbnbs in Ukraine and, and, and buying things on Etsy that they're not going to buy as a means of directly supporting individual people. Again, for me, it's that like you have control over the world to fill it with what is important to you in ways you never have. And so from the TikTok algorithm to demanding sustainability from companies to, you know, supporting knife makers in Ukraine, it's a, it's an interesting time. So that's the dominant idea in my head, right? Oh, there's so much in that. I love that you use the word intentional, intentionality. 
because I feel, I mean, if you look at love at two levels, right, you've got the love that, that we're just talking about now, which is your world is filled with what you love, as in the, your world is filled with the energy and the things that you are, that you're giving your attention, your energy to, more of it arrives. But if you look at love in a larger sense as well, you know, there are, we attract, let's just say in our romantic life, we all go through periods of time where you think, why am I attracting this thing? Like this particular <laughs> kind of, why am I doing that? And so there's two levels of love, right? There's the overt love, which is the love that we think that we want, the person that we think that we are, what we think we're putting out into the world, which is the same with the internet. I think I am a very, you know, conscious and considered person. I think I'm very rational and level. So why is everything that's coming into my feed divisive, <laughs> outrageous, dramatic? It's the same, right? Like we we need to get more intentional about what who we are being, what we are paying attention to and how we are showing up online just as much as we need to do in the, the real world. I there's a very much blurring between those two things at the moment, but in the real world, because what you pay attention to and how you show up is what you're attracting back into your little echo chamber of a feed or of a life. Yeah. I, 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 in an earlier generation, the kids may not remember, but when Netflix used to send uh, DVDs yes. and at that crossover between DVDs yes. and streaming, you either your Netflix queue would be filled with, I had all of these like, you know, European art cinema and, and Iranian filmmakers on the rise and all these things. Like if there were 700 hours in the day, I was going to watch. But the reality when I sat down at the end of the day, I did not, that was not what I sought out. You know, mm. I didn't have the energy to digest as, well, nearly as much as I would like. That's also because Netflix was at that stage, this, the power of the digital world at that stage was they were paying attention to what you said you wanted right. as opposed to what you were actually doing. And now right. it's paying attention to what you're actually doing. Yeah. 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 Well, talk to me about, um, I really want to hear about the view that you have right now from your particular helicopter on the world as it emerges from COVID, because your helicopter view has always been fascinating. To me, I really believe that the work that you do and that your teams do is at the pointy end of our attention, not where we think we're spending our attention or what we think we're doing with our attention, but what we are actually doing with our attention. Talk to me about what that landscape looks like from where you are. Yeah, so the, the very first conversation that you and I had, we talked about choice. Uh, you know, uh, mobile video and the conversations about mobile video were all around length. Um, and what's become clearer and clearer going into COVID and coming out is that choice is what is what's driving us. And so for us, the screen that is exploding is the living room. The growth is is astronomical. It's unbelievable. Um, but the reason that it's exploding is because it provides a different kind of choice. And what we find is people don't care if it's high production value, low production value, they want relevant, they want interesting, they want emotional, um, they want these this world sort of tuned into them, and then they're willing to give it an incredible amount of attention. And, you know, the, the counterweight over the last couple of years has been this explosion of TikTok, which is fascinating, except that TikTok is now 10 minutes long. And it's not about uh, short. It's about choice and it's about being fed a thing I'm interested in. And if I'm interested in it, I don't care how long it is. And so that piece of like, I don't care what screen it is. I don't care if it's a little screen or a big screen. It is the thing that I want. And as we've been home, it has been a big screen. I like a big screen and I can see. And as we become more mobile, I think it'll be both together. 
And so for me, this question of, you know, how do you get people tuned into you is the core strategy, especially for, 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 for brands who are trying to change their trajectory. I know your, your countryman, Byron Sharp, is a big, you know, mental availability and salience. And if you've had a decade or two decades to build your brand, I think that's true. But if you need to change the trajectory of your brand, I think you need to get people to tune in. And so we've been talking with brands about this idea of big stories, of a story that's long enough and interesting enough to get people to change their mind and change their heart. And then, yes, this whole universe of reinforcements of on shelf and short messages and six second ads and like all that stuff has to work. That whole world, I think, is going to get much more automated. Uh, it's getting better. Short video display ads messaging, all that stuff is tuning into people. But at the heart of it is a big story. And those big stories, in the place we saw it, the most striking was, was fashion and luxury. And if you had said five years ago that you know fashion and luxury brands were going to focus in on the world of YouTube, people would have thought that's ridiculous. It's cat videos, it's low quality, and why would a you know Louis Vuitton or a Balenciaga, why would they be living in the YouTube world? Well, all those brands in COVID, when they couldn't have the fashion show, they all moved them into YouTube and they were either live shows or they were long videos, 10 minutes, 11 minutes at a time. Because if you're selling a brand with that depth and richness, you need the time. And really the only place where you can get that time is on YouTube, is the time, it's the fidelity, it's the depth, you can have sound. And so we saw all of these big Gucci, Prada, these major brands for whom the core of their brand is incredible storytelling, telling these big stories, rich, deep, human, and then this whole universe of invitations. So that's what we see going on. It's this choice-driven world where this question is, how do you get tuned into? And it's anchored on stories that are not 15 seconds or 30 seconds. They're two minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes long. I, I really want to dive into that, the idea there of the of big story, because it seems counterintuitive, right? Like we talked the, the first time we chatted, um, for anybody that's listening, well worth going back to that original conversation, even just to compare the world that we were talking about then with the world that we're talking about now. Um, we were talking about the Netflix effect and the fact that we, you know, our brains have re been rewired for story, including the importance of trailers, having a compelling trailer, having compelling short form that leads to your long form. And that's the world that, that you operate in, right? YouTube, Unskippable Labs was about how to not get people to press skip after five seconds, how to have a compelling enough trailer so people want to continue watching. What's the link there now between these big stories that you're talking about, which I agree wholeheartedly with as somebody who's a fan and has made my whole world and career about the big stories. What's the link there between the short form, the trailer? What does that need to be in order to get me to show enough interest to jump into the big story and commit myself to it? Yeah, so, so when we first talked, a lot of our team's focus was on that five second window and getting past the skip button. And then the idea was if you have them past the skip button, maybe you can tell a longer story. Now what we've done is, is, is broken down sort of the two to three minute length, which is kind of an optimal length in general. You can do longer than that, but, but sort of two to three minutes is the sort of most effective. And we've, built out attentional windows in there to say, not just what do you do in the first five seconds, but what do you do from five to 15 seconds? And it turns out 
you want to set up these hooks that we call sort of, um, they, they tend to be either a burst of something that grabs my attention or a complex emotional situation that my brain wants to resolve. And then I'll choose to watch and I need a payoff by 15 seconds. I need a, a, an answer to that question that leads me to another one. And then that next section we call the messy middle. And this is a sort of heartbeat structure of like payoff and complication and payoff and complication. And those can go on, you know, as long as you can be interesting. And then we need resolution at the end. And so we're starting to see the, the, the guts of a longer story emerge. Because what was happening when we first talked was people were like, let me survive the first five seconds and then I get to tell any story that I want, right? Then I can just be as flabby and crappy a storyteller and it's whatever you know my self-indulgent heart desires. And all these super talented creative directors were going back to being like student filmmakers. And you were like, all the discipline that you had in a 30 second spot is just out the window, like cut it out. Well, now we have the research to say, you know, you can look at a retention curve and you can you can watch an audience disappear and you look at it and you say, hey, this at this point, like you've lost people. And so you can build the story up in longer and longer blocks. And what's especially fascinating. So this is another major part of our research is we're having a much clearer picture of um, ads by objective. So how ads are different if you're driving ad recall versus consideration, versus purchase intent, versus action. And the ads that drive ad recall and awareness are shorter, singularly focused, you know, six to 15 second punchy ads. You would make sense logically if you think about it. If you wanna change hearts and minds, that consideration favorability, those need to be longer. So two to three minutes is optimal and no one is gonna watch that unless you choose it. And so again, you need to be really intentional about the length and then what's in it and then as you get to action ads again you want it to be shorter so they tighten up again and then you're not persuading somebody you're reinforcing a choice so it's like what's the value proposition and and close the deal um, so this architecture of attention and then the tie to objective is sort of what's emerging for us out of this now i feel like there's almost there's two pieces to that one is i'm sat here thinking it's interesting how your world and my world have intersected because you know for the last 20 years i had worked in the world of speakers of thought leaders of influencers and the entire thing that's behind being successful at that is an architecture it is you know you have the first two minutes if you're going to give a presentation the first two minutes you had better kill in that first two minutes otherwise everybody's thinking about what they're having for dinner and then you have the next part that needs to be this kind of problem solution dance tension resolution part and then then and at the end there needs to be a closed loop i mean the architecture that you're describing here these two and the world of advertising was just completely different to that it was just shout as loud as you can as frequently as you can <laughs> and just do it everywhere and I feel like the two worlds are very much are very much coming together now in terms of what does human attention look like when it is at its most compelling engaging and effective yeah I think I think the place where that probably roots that at least we've started again to poke around is there are sciences of memory structure and how you establish memories and the nature of experience just as you described is it's very strong at the start. It establishes a sort of mental model that we hold on to, even if other things change, and right at the end. And you can think about this on trips that you've had. You know, if you come in and it's great at the beginning, it almost doesn't matter what happens in the middle as long as it's great at the end. But similarly, you can go and have a trip where it was great, it was great, it was great. And then if you have a terrible trip home, then the whole trip doesn't seem good because that's what 
sticks in your memory. And so those points, that's just breaking that down now. So we've got We've kind of got the first two two seconds, which is the scroll through. Like, is it interesting enough for me not just to scroll past it on my feed? And then you've got the the kind of the five second mark, almost where we make a decision about whether we're going to continue, whether it was a good decision to stop scrolling or not. And then the 15 second mark, which is like, okay, do I commit a larger period of my time now? And then it almost, and tell me if I'm wrong, it almost feels like it becomes unlimited after that as you said if you can hold the tension and resolve the tension hold the tension resolve the tension right yep that's true that's true and what's and what's interesting in that is it's almost an anti-rhythm like as soon as we believe that we can understand what's coming and we start to anticipate it and so uh stories that are too regular in their cadence and you know da dum da dum da dum da dum you see, you can watch people disappear. You see the audience disappear. And so you need, you know, a, a more erratic, uh, I think I know, I think I know, I think I know. Um, there was a there was a professor who we did some 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 work with who had an, uh, an idea called pink noise, which I thought was super interesting. So white noise is everything chaos, black is everything the same. And pink noise is this erratic, more erratic pattern. Um, and the idea is, and he had a he had a, a, a evolutionary basis in hunting that we need that because it signals either danger or prey, that there is a chance in there if the pattern is is inconsistent in some way. There's movement, and we're tuned to to pay attention to it. Uh, so pink noise, which I thought pink was great. Noise. Pink noise. I love that. The other thing that's kind of came to mind while you were talking was the concept of characters. And I don't know if there's a link there or not, but you know, you're talking about pink noise there, which is, you know, will it happen? Will it not? What's going to go on here? What's going to happen? That almost by its very nature necessitates some characters, like characters that we care about, characters that interplay in interesting ways that have situations that resolve or don't resolve. What have you noticed, if anything, about the use of characters within storytelling? So um, we did some some super interesting work with the movie studios and with HBO, uh, where we were we started we were working with Warner Brothers and they said as a, as a trailer strategy is it better to focus on character is it better to focus on plot is it better to focus on sort of sensation and we were we were working uh, with King Arthur Guy Ritchie's King Arthur and so is it you know Charlie Hunnam's portrayal of Arthur that we want to see is it it's the sword in the stone and and the drama of the story or is it just you know explosions and war elephants and so on and we worked with them to cut trailers and the output of that was super interesting in that the trailer that came out number one was the character but the reason that it was number one was because a female audience responded very powerfully to that one like four times as strongly as any of the others and they didn't really like any of the others where a male audience the the sensation one was better, but it was only about 15 or 20% better. And they liked all of them. They liked character and, and so on. And so we, we did another round of that experimentation working with HBO and found exactly the same thing, that there was this character-driven, sort of more narrowly focused kind of storytelling that started either with a single character or two characters together. And that was uh, that created a connection to the story that then let you expand from there, where if you tried to do a sort of multi-threaded story from the beginning, people may or may not pay attention. And, 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 and the cues there that they pick up on, since they don't have a dramatic situation to plug into, are 
you know, is it a genre that I like? So we were working on Westworld and it starts very Western and very sci-fi. And if you don't like Western or sci-fi, you're gone, right? You're tuned out. And it doesn't matter that the story is beautiful and amazing and knits together. And so we did again an experiment with them where we focused on one of the characters, Tandy Newton's character, and her story and the whole story through her eyes. And we got a spectacular response from a female audience, just amazing response. And a male audience responded to that one. And they responded to one that was just sort of more of a vibe, like a sensation of the show and some other variations. And so our conclusion from that is that kind of character driven, you know, tightly focused or especially initially tightly focused storytelling uh, is very powerful for female audience and works well for a male audience and the other strategies. You don't get a female audience at all and may or may not work for a male audience. I mean, I feel like I feel like I was having this conversation with corporations ten years ago, um, which is which you feel my sense of almost frustration. Um, that you know, we we need characters, we need someone to relate to. You know, you, the days of just branded communication is gone now. You need people within your organization who are going to step step up as the the core characters of your organization, people who are driving the conversation forward, people who are passionate about what their particular lens on the story of your organization you need to be getting letting them out there empowering them to get out there and tell those stories and i think that that same applies even if you're in a small business from a large business which is you are the main character a brand can't really drive a conversation it's very difficult but you can drive a conversation and the impact is so much more when you do so have you been noticing something similar when it comes to when it comes to advertising in general that it's the human voices well, it's so it's it's interesting. I think there's a there's a cross current of energy there where there is an enormous and I think great focus on diversity and inclusion. So which voices are they and what are we hearing from those voices? And then how does that relate to sort of what a corporation is saying? Um, and again, this is a place where we've done where we've done a bunch of research. And one of the interesting pieces of that that we found is diversity in advertising is not about representation. Uh, it's not about it's not about identification. That is, I don't need to see somebody who looks like me to respond positively, but a more diverse cast, a more diverse set of of, of characters and thoughts and voices is appealing to people outside of the groups that are represented. So I don't need to see somebody who looks like me. I need to see that there is a range of human possibility and a diversity of voices, and that feels uh, modern and attractive. Um, and so that's an interesting piece of the combination. Yes, we want to hear voices. We want to hear human voices. But our attachment to them is not narrowly focused on, I need to hear a voice that sounds like mine and says things like I would say them. And I think, you know, part of the sort of, in some ways, polarization of our politics and so on, is like, oh, I need to hear somebody who agrees with me. And in the advertising world, we're not we're not seeing that. Uh, maybe in political advertising, but in brand advertising, in beauty, in in auto, I want to see a range of life that has space for someone who is like me, uh, and and that is represented by a range. It's not represented by somebody who looks just like me. I don't need to see you know my mirror image, which is a beautiful trend in and of itself. That in order to feel favorably towards an organization or a message or a conversation, we want to see the plurality of, of voices that make up that conversation, that we are naturally drawn towards seeing representation within those organizations and conversations. Um, I also want to talk to you about completion. 
one of the things that I have zero data other than my own personal experience to back this up. Let me just be really clear about this. Um, but one of the things I noticed that I was craving over the past couple of years, and that craving has kind of continued into this year, is a sense of completion with the stories that I consume. I found there was such a, a lack of, of completion in my life or in the world in general. We didn't know how it was going to end. We didn't know how this project, if this project was even going to get off the ground, let alone if it was going to get cancelled halfway through. All the usual sense of completion was gone. We didn't even know if our kids were going to go to school on a particular day um, or what was going to happen, how this story was going to play itself out. So I started really craving completion in my in the storytelling that I wanted. I, I wouldn't even start a Netflix show unless it the seasons had ended you know there's five seasons there is an ending I will watch it but if there was going to be two seasons and no completion to that story I'm not I'm not starting I can't start and so and I've just started seeing it everywhere this craving for completion you know I don't want to be left on a cliffhanger I don't have the bandwidth for cliffhangers I yeah. really want a sense of completion. Has that, is that me? I think this is probably just a question around, is that me? Or how does that play out in the wider world of the data that you have access to? Um, I, so I think there are two pieces. One that is just you and one that is broader. I think, <laughs> Do you know how I think, badly I didn't want that to be the answer? No, just I mean, there's, so it's, there, there are pieces of both of that. There are pieces of both of that. The piece I think that, that we see is, a, is an exhaustion uh, around indeterminacy, and so we want we want a, a kind of certainty. But we saw there's a there's a super interesting search data that says in the height of COVID, we were searching for known brands. We were searching for the familiar, the comforting. Um, I was I was joking with uh, with uh, one of the Mondelez senior clients that Oreo should have been the official cookie of the pandemic. We wanted that thing that we knew that was comfortable. And as the conditions have started to lift, now there's a pivot and we're looking for new experiences and fresh experiences and we're opening up a little bit. And so the generic searches have re-overtaken brand searches. Uh, and so people are starting to open to new, to new experiences. On the kind of content that we pay attention to, um, I think that that what we see, and 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 again, this may this may um, be split because it's sort of still emerging, but there's a sort of a, a, a vibing content creation. I like creators whose vibe I like, and I'll like almost anything that they like. And so I'll like like their music, and I want to know what food they eat, and um, and I think we see that. I want to inhabit worlds that feel good to me and are and, and are comforting, and I enjoy, and the communities that are being built up around them. Uh, and so I think that, that, that I don't see closure in those. I see continuity and I see spread. I want to love the things that they love and I'm interested in going where they go. And you can see from the rise of the creator influencer culture and their collaborations that those worlds sort of cross pollinate and, and go out. That's, that's really interesting. I just want to pick up on that word that you use there, which is vibing. Which, you know, sounds like it's, it's fresh out of the, fresh out of the sixties, but I think I think genuinely I get a sense of what you mean when you say that word because you're right. There are communities popping up around a certain feeling. around, And there's usually a person at the nexus of that, you know, there's a person right at the epicenter or a, at least a collection of people at the epicenter. But let, let's pull that, pair that back a second. So if there are, which there are, communities popping up around a feeling or a, a vibe, if I'm somebody who wants to start out in that world, 
if I'm somebody who wants to create a community, not necessarily around a product in particular because productization comes later, but a particular feeling, a, a sense of state of who I am, where I am in this place and time, come join me if you feel the same. What guidance would you give them in, in terms of how to start building momentum around that? So I'm going to go back to where I started, which is the world is made of what you love. And what I say is love that thing that you love and go in as far as you can. And, and the thing that we see from, from these creators is a sort of a call and response tuning of that. People who are like, I put my weird thing out there and I didn't know there was this whole weird community of people and they build and the thing that you love as the community responds, you see like, oh, it isn't like that. It's like this. And um, uh, one of the one of my favorite creators is a guy, Babish. He does a thing show called Binging with Babish. And he loves pop culture and he loves cooking. And so he, a lot of his, I mean, he has a whole bunch of different stuff, but a lot of his shows are making, you know, the Krusty Burger from SpongeBob SquarePants or the, the, the um, Madame au Chocolat from Grand Budapest Hotel. And so he's plugged into culture and then he makes the food from that thing. And how does it go? And how does he recreate it? And, you know, and again, he started out like, who has a weird brain like me who wants to actually make a Krusty Burger? Well, it turns out millions of people do. Uh, so I would say lean into that thing that you love very deeply, unapologetically, love it fully and see who comes along. I think there's also impact there to be had um, at the intersection. You know, the, the collision of two worlds is something that we find deeply fascinating about the collision of two worlds. You know, as you said, the collision of movies and a love of cooking. You know, th when those two worlds collide, it gets, it suddenly gets really, really interesting. And I see that. There's actually a woman based here in Melbourne and she has a um, she has a bakery in Melbourne and she was an astrophysicist and she used to work with Formula One cars to try and make the Formula One cars as fast as they could be. And she traveled the world working on Formula One cars and then one day she was like, I need to take a bit of a sabbatical. She loved croissants and so she went to Paris and she studied how to make croissants. And she came back to Australia and she thought, what if I take everything I know about physics and science and what if I combine it with the world of croissant making and so she started this bakery in Melbourne on the intersection of those two worlds and everybody became so fascinated with what she was doing that her croissant was voted the number one croissant in the world by the New York Times Amazing. a woman out of Melbourne but just how just drawn we are to people who take one world where we have kind of intrigue and interest and combine it with another where we have intrigue and interest. Amazing. I, I, I also think if you don't love it, nobody's going to love it. And so, you know, for the people who are like, oh, I want to be an influencer and I want to, and they're chasing and chasing and chasing and chasing, like you're not going to love it. And so you need to find a thing that is, that is very fundamentally you. And I think people will respond to that genuine authentic energy and the worlds that you bring together in it. And, um, uh, that's the fun part about the creators, the creator universe for me is these people. And you're like, wow, your brain, it goes this, you love that thing and these and this and the other thing. And to your point, it's not about, you know, yeah, their car blogs or shaving or whatever, but it's the people who are like, I love this thing and are deep, go deep in it. I think that energy draws us a lot. And also the intrigue of the things that you don't understand. You know, mm -hmm. I will never understand unboxing. 
never for the rest <laughs> of my life will I ever understand unboxing. And and the popularity of watching people take things out of boxes on YouTube. Like I will never get that. And yet it is huge, more than huge. It 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 uh it 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 made my wife crazy, but for a significant period of time, I spent time watching videos of other people playing video games. And she's like, well, why don't you just play the video game? Like if you like it, play the game. And for me, yeah, it's great to play the games. They're they're fun, but there is an exercise of skill and an entertainment in that and a lack of commitment. Like I don't always want to spin up and play the game. I want to just see somebody do it and unlock it. And, you know, on a pretty fundamental level, is there a difference between enjoying watching a basketball game or a tennis match or a video game where you see universe unfold and you see the exercise of skill and ways you appreciate it? Um, and so that was one, I mean, you know, that's one people are like, that's dumb. Why would you watch somebody play a video game? But you think, oh, it's an exercise of skill in a world that you like and appreciate and they're entertainers and entertaining and they love that thing that you love in a way that plugs into how you love it. And it, works. it also goes back to that word vibing. Like you, mm -hmm. you get to plug into the vibe without actually having to do the task itself. <laughs> and you just reminded me one of... Um, one a video I sometimes play when I speak is a video of PewDiePie, you know PewDiePie, mm -hmm. who was the um, on the front cover of Time magazine as the the I think the the number one influential person on the internet, and all he does for those of you who have never heard of him is he plays zombie games. That's it. That's his thing. He plays. He films himself playing zombie games, and he's so entertaining while he does it because I've watched a few of them. He's so entertaining while he does it that he, I mean, I don't know how many gazillions of followers he has, but it's a lot. But you're plugging into his vibe. I'm going to start using this word everywhere now. The vibe of him doing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are a bunch. And I, I think in the beauty space, there are a lot of those people. And it isn't about a specific style. Again, it's about a, it's about a vibe. There's this whole world of beauty influencers and they they uh, put on makeup as they explain very complex social issues. Like there's an incredible set that are about the situation in the Ukraine or in Palestine or um, Occupy Wall Street. And, you know, they're literally putting on makeup and doing this and that combination, to your point, the juxtaposition of, of makeup and the act of putting on makeup and the, you know, skill and creativity of it and the very earnest, detailed conversation about social issues. And it just works. It just is together and it's very compelling. That's fascinating. I want to talk about the weird world of ads just for a second, because <laughs> that is your world. And you sent me an email before this conversation and, you know, I love talking about ads. I have very little um, credibility in that space. It's not a world that I have spent much time in, but I really do believe that the the pointy end of those who are spending incredible sums of money on figuring out what works when it comes to advertising, experimenting, throwing things at it when there's high stakes involved. That's where the pointy end of finding out about human attention really lives. And you had said when I think, I can't remember what I asked you, but you had said they're longer and shorter, more experiential, longer stories, sometimes people, sometimes only products. It's evolving super rapidly and it is a whole new world. Who do you, who do you see coming out on top in this new world what and what are they doing how are they thinking um the people who the people who are going to come out are the people who evolve the quickest and so there's a kind of 
fearlessness emerging from from the most successful brands where they're less beholden to where they were and they trust in data in a way that lets them move forward and not hide from risk uh, and so a lot of those companies we see in in in, in APAC right now really exploding the sort of pure e-commerce companies or the gaming companies and they just don't care. They don't have, you know, 30 years of CPG advertising that says ads look like this and do that and then this works. And so they they just are vomiting stuff onto let's try this and let's try that and let's try this. And the ad products themselves, uh, particularly in the app space, they're 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 automated in terms of finding audiences and delivering what works. And so you can just pump ads in and the machine will figure out which ones work for which audience and where it goes. And so um, for us, you know, what we're doing is we'll take a pool of the most successful ads and the least successful ads and say, okay, what are the patterns in here? Um, and in the app world, I mean, to the experiential point, the most successful app ads in the world are not telling a story. They are showing you the experience of the app, they just drop you in in the middle of it and you're just in the app and they work fantastically well in the first, you know, you look at you look at the first 10 of them and you're like, this is weird. And then you look at a hundred of them, a thousand of them and you're like, this is the thing I wanna, I mean, I'm looking at it probably on my phone and it looks like it's a part of my phone and I don't know, I can see myself in it, but it's not a story about the app or the idea of the app or a feature benefit of the app. It's like, it is the app and and that experience is the thing that drives, you know, mobile game downloads and um, e-commerce app downloads and so on. And you can't get there from, I spent 20 years at PNG and I know how advertising works. And so you gotta, you know, jump into the deep end of the pool. And it and and it's amazing from a global perspective because you see these markets where, you know, they just don't care. I mean, the fearless markets, Israel is an incredibly fearless market and they, if it works, they don't care. And so you see these things that don't look like ads or combined content in weird ways. And the people who are deciding don't have in their mind a preconceived sense of what an ad is or how it works. They just want whatever works. And so um, there are there are best and most leaned in experimentation partners, and they're opening this door to, you know, eight minute long ads and 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 these ads that have no no experience, but to your point, just vibe. Um, and what's the right combination of sound effects and music? And um, we we saw a whole a whole wave of ads that had like hardcore you know jazzy rock electronica like and that's not what people want that didn't work people are like oh we have to you know people are desensitized and we got to sort of shock them into paying attention and to the point of vibing all these lo-fi ads came out and they had music and they were just cool and chill and you were like oh this you know more like that and so then you start to see it isn't what i thought it isn't what i thought it isn't what i thought um so that's what that's what we're seeing it's the evolvers um but there's something in there that's that's really powerful around the the tension that I'm feeling now, and and I and I believe that you're feeling too between trusting your creative instincts and trusting the data. And I see that tension come up a lot with creators, with with thought leaders, influencers, which is my creative instincts are telling me this. I want to do it this way. I want to do it long form. I want to do it um, from a multitude of perspectives. I want to do, or I want to do it really short and pointy. That's where my creative instincts are taking me. But all of the data is playing out the opposite. 
how do you because I know that you have a professional life and you also have a creative life I know that you write you write novels how do you how do you reconcile because I've struggled with it I remember when I first started the the podcast the predominant viewpoint was it needs to be short and I remember everybody saying like if it's less than 20 minutes I'll probably listen <laughs> and then but my creative instincts were I I want longer form conversations I want to really get into something my introductions are way longer than most people probably maybe want them to be <laughs> but that's not the point for me the point is the exploration the point is the the diving into something and the uncovering of something and the vibe the vibe of what I is it true to what I'm wanting to create in the world and so I went with what I went with and, and, and it has worked but it may well not have done I've, I've ignored the data which was shorter the better it may well not have done how do you marry up those two things creativity versus trusting the data yeah i think the i think that the i think that the creativity is a light that lets you see risk it isn't a decider and um and so you can use it to see risk and make choices and i think you adjust your sense of the risk against that but it doesn't it doesn't decide for you we we um we we talk about the vanilla ice cream problem uh, when we talk about um, machine learning. So if you're using machine learning and what you input is a thousand types of vanilla ice cream, what you'll get is a slightly better vanilla ice cream. So if you want something other than vanilla ice cream, you need a whole different set of inputs and flavors and so on. And we think the same thing about ads. If you put in you know a thousand thirty second TV ads you'll get a slightly better 30 second TV ad. You'll never find out that they should be six seconds or two minutes or you know, just vibing or a totally different kind of story. And so for us, it's that balance of meta-analysis at scale, what are the patterns, and then hypotheses and experimentation that bridge out into the future. And for us, one of the luxuries we have is the opportunity to be intentionally wrong, to take a thing, we think it's dumb, we don't think it's gonna work, and that lets us you know, evolve more quickly because it's not my job on the line if I'm intentionally wrong in an experiment. I got you know three to five variations and I have one I think probably will work and one I can take a flyer on and we'll see what comes out. Um, so it's for me, it's it's trying to figure out what you can risk where and 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 in the advertising world anyway, using that to evolve as quickly as you can. And also going back to what you said earlier, which was the choice. You know, we're living in a mm -hmm. world of choice. One of the things I tried to do when I started the podcast, and it was in knowledge of the fact that I was taking a risk going against the curve of, you know, the shorter, the better, the shorter, the better. And was that, okay, if you want the, if you like me, if you're crazy like me and you want a long form, then come play with me because I'm going to do that. But if you want to, if you want a short form, here's a small, here's a three, here's a three minute bite of that. Here's a short yeah. synopsis of that. You can still be involved if you want to. Um, a friend of mine calls it hashtag choose both. I don't have to choose either. Okay. Hashtag choose okay. both. Okay. Um, now that could be a really wise strategic move or it can also sometimes be just a, a pit of energy because you're trying to please everybody right. all of the time. Um, do you, I mean, do you have a take on that? Is it, should you just stick with, okay, this is working, let's go with it? Or do you provide multiple options for multiple people who might not love it the way that you love it? Yeah, I mean, that's the sort of, that's the sort of process on the advertising side is like, which audiences are important and what is your objective? And so we are always starting there. When we go to, when we work with clients, we say, tell us what you're trying to do. Are you changing the trajectory, driving sales, getting people in store? 
because that'll change all the downstream decisions. And then, you know, give us your best ad, whatever it is. So you want to drive people to store and this is your best ad, great. Here are our hypotheses about how that could be better or why it would be different and let's try them. And if, and if your ad is better, great, like you're a genius and it's fine and, and we'll, we'll go on our merry way. But if it's not, then maybe there's a door that opens and some new piece comes out and we've done, I don't know now, 450 of these experiments against an existing control in a focused controlled way against an objective. Um, and we beat the objective about 90% of the time and the margin of victory is about 20 to 25%. And so from my perspective, like do you want every dollar worth 20% more, 25% more? Give it a shot. And I'm pretty sure we can help you. I'm pretty sure it can be better. I think that's the that's also the biggest change from when we first spoke. When we we first spoke, it was really experimental, and our team was like, "You don't know. I don't know. Let's find out." I mean, you started um, by putting it literally an ad out there. I rem remember this conversation vividly. Putting an ad out there of a blank wall, just a blank wall. Nothing else happened. Just to see how long people would watch an ad when nothing happened. I mean that you were you were at the very forefront of this entire experimental era of of what works and what doesn't. Right. And now but now we know. Like now now we know all of the stuff we didn't know then and the data sets are knitting up. So now it's not just when we first started it was just are you paying attention or not and then it was brand lift and conversion and now it's validated by mmms at scale across 11,000 ads so if you do the top five basic pieces of our guidance then you'll see a 30 percent increase in short-term sales and a 17 percent increase in long-term brand contribution validated globally by nielsen and how can we find those top five for anyone who's sitting there going like literally just picked up a pen and said, I'm going to write down those top five. Where can we find those top five pieces yeah, of guidance? Think, think with Google. Uh, we'll have uh, yeah an article on ABCD and ROI, and we have a bunch of we have a bunch of research there that is very concrete and says here are the things validated against Cantor's data set, validated against Nielsen's data set, and, and we will put uh, we'll put a copy of that in the in the show notes as well. I'll grab a copy from you and get it up there. I just want to talk about letting go of ideas, which actually isn't something I thought I was going to ask you about, but from the brief conversation you and I had when we came on, came on today was you, you mentioned this beautiful phrasing, which was a Viking funeral. And you said that there was, you know, you had mentioned unskippable labs and you had mentioned different ideas and the importance for you and your team, your army, as you call them now, of I think it's what, 750 people? Was it 750 across the world? That, that was the that was the army we let go. Yeah. Yeah. The the importance of giving something a Viking funeral, of fully letting an idea, a project, a birthing go, so that you can actually move on with full energy and access to full resources. Where did you come across the the need for that? We we were we were wrestling with the decision at all. So I had built this brand, Unskippable Labs. It was, you know, me part-time and then me and a scrappy little team. And then we built this sort of global business on the back of volunteers, 750 part-time volunteer, 20 percenters, all these amazingly talented Googlers. Um, and, and it grew in this incredible way. And we got to this decision point where we were too big to just be this rogue operation. 
but we were also not aligned with all of the channels and processes of uh, the teams that did this professionally and the sellers that all needed it. I mean, Google's a uh, 200,000 people. So 750 person army sounds pretty big, but you know, there are reasons that that scale exists and people who are professionals at it. And so we had this moment of like, do we give up our precious little brand, which we grew and I love and, you know, I, I, I sweated for and bled for and sat in a thousand airports for, um, and in favor of building this global creative organization, which was my brand and some other people who had powerful brands that were very compelling and had traction market and so on. And so we all kind of held hands and said, we're gonna be Creative Works. That's our global brand. There's a branch in Australia and all the countries around the world where we do business. And, and the scale worked. So my team went from doing sort of 700 engagements a year to this last year, the, the large global org, not all my team, but the org will do 7,000. So we're 10x bigger uh, in in two years, um, and you know we went from from touching a bunch of different brands to touching a huge volume of the brands that are on YouTube, and we'll have we'll have our hands in two billion dollars worth of ads this year, and that's the scale I couldn't have done as Unskippable Labs and my little you know band of pirates. But there's a letting go that's involved. Yeah, there was a mourning. Yeah, and I love that you use that language because there's a letting go of something that, as you said, you've sat in a thousand airports for you've bled, blood, sweat and tears <laughs> for you've cried over. Like it, there is a letting go and a funeral almost that needs to occur for you to acknowledge the fact that this is now done to close the chapter. What right. did you, what do you do for that? Is there a ritual involved in that? I mean, I, there was probably more drinking involved than it's prudent to mention <laughs> on, a, on a family podcast. You see, uh, I'm more of a climb to the top of a mountain, write it down on a piece of paper, burn. I'm, I'm a bit more of a big ritual kind of lady. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, I wish we had had an actual, actual Viking funeral. I think that would have been very satisfying. But we got the core group of the team together and acknowledged that it was an extraordinary thing that we had built and that we had, you know, it was an amazing uh, opportunity that we'd had. And now there was a new thing and it was going to be shaped differently and look differently and it wouldn't feel the same. And, you know, you can always feel a little pang. There's a little, there's a little mourning that goes on, but the new things that we're able to do and the talent that comes in, I mean, I'm, I'm a big, I'm a big believer in the idea that more smart people don't work for you than do work for you, however smart you are, even if you're Google. Um, and so trying to stay as permeable as as you can be. Uh, I think it's a, that's an interesting piece about the job now for me is the space continues to explode from a black ad, uh, you know, five years ago to, to now there are huge third parties that are very successful, very talented, who are using machine learning to analyze creative, to uh, whole agencies that are built up around creative effectiveness, to obviously our whole team, products being built within Google that leverage creative effectiveness at a different sort of scale. And so for me, it's fascinating. And the leadership challenge is to say, what's the right place to be involved and where, you know, where do you land? Are you are you moving more in a product direction so things change at the root and then go downstream? Are you more client direction because they're moving fast and they have business imperatives? But there's also that flip that you and I have, have talked about, which is the, the flip from the frontier, you know, being at the frontier is something, the energy and the cohesiveness that happens when you're at the frontier with, with your army, you're breaking new ground, you're creating new things to when it works, suddenly 
for any creators out there, you'll know you you suddenly move from the frontier into, and you use this beautiful languaging about it. You said, you know, I feel like I've been moved to the Senate, like I'm a congressperson now. And that, and as I said to you when you mentioned it, you know, that speaks to your flexibility as a human being that you can go from frontier to Congress because not many people can. Most people have a natural and natural um, environment that they thrive in. How how have you managed that adaption within yourself from from being at that frontier to suddenly being a congressman? Yeah, I mean, poorly, I'd say. You can ask my team for, <laughs> for details. That, that was the <laughs> response because I managed it poorly too. <laughs> um, it's a different set of skills. You know, I worked in I worked in uh, venture capital for a while, and I was at early at the early stage investing um, part of the business. And one of the things that happens there is with investment comes a professional CEO. And so a founder builds it and carries it, and then they become chief product officer, or chairman. But there's a recognition in that world that comes from investment to say you need somebody who can grow, you know, from 10 million to 100 million, and it's a different set of skills than from zero to 10 million. Um, for for me, what I try and do, I'm trying to hire around that. I'm trying to say, look, the space is still exploding, and and I think I have a kind of vision of how to pursue it, even if I don't know where it's going, and I need more operational rigor and more support and more people around me who can see the scaling in a way that I can't. Uh, and so, hopefully, you know, you give enough them enough control to to build around you a thing that's got the scale, um, but not so rigid that you can't continue to pursue it. Uh, and that's the challenge. I had a long, I had a, lo a, lo a long series of debates with, with with some of the early team members, and they're like, oh, I wish we were, you know, sort of back out on the frontier again." And the reality of that is, well, we may not be able to do what we want to do on the frontier, and the chance to maintain freedom and maintain autonomy is to work in the Senate or be the mayor of the small town rather than be out on the frontier. If somebody else is in control, they may shut it down. And also the truth is if we were back out on the frontier, we might lose this time because there are right. others on the frontier at the moment. That was our advantage that we were the only ones on the frontier. Now our advantage is that we've done that. We fought the battles. We have the scars. We have the data. Now our advantage is to step back and to, to use the scale and experience that we have to, to drive the conversation. Right. Um, before I let you go, I wanted to talk to you just very briefly about quick time versus slow time. And this goes back to what we talked about previously, which was the, the let's say, intersection or the friction between trusting your creative instincts, your creativity, and, and the data, following the data. And you, I know that you've written, you've written two books. So you've written one book. I'm on the second one. I've written one and I'm working on the second one. You're working one. on the second one. I'm going to say that you, yeah. you're in the process. It's, it's, it's going to be. <laughs> yes. um, but one about, you know, I think you've called it the frothy present, which is, you know, everything that's happening in real time that we're learning that needs updating every five minutes. And then this other book that you're working on and the perspective that it's given you working on two very different timescales. Yeah, my daily life is this froth. It is like, what is TikTok doing now? What is YouTube doing now? What and is there's the a panic creators? What is in that? Just... Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it's a it's a weird like your nerves are jangly, but also it's soothing to have all those new information. And then at the same time, this this second book I've been working on 
it's closing in on 16 years that I've been working on the second book. The first one took me about eight years to write and got published. It's out. It's called The Rope Eater. Um, and I like to say that it did well enough that my editor still takes my calls, but not so well that I'm not doing this. So um, somewhere in the middle. And, and when I sold it, I made the decision to say, I don't want to write the kind of books I would need to write so that, you know, I make sure my kids have shoes or food on the table. Uh, and this is the other side. This is, you know, 16 years later and it's coming along. I think it's compelling. I think it's interesting, but the amount of marination that it takes to keep it alive, because I could have abandoned it a lot and it doesn't alive because I forced it to be alive. It's alive because the ideas continue to be compelling. Um, but for 16 years to say, hey, this the same story that I'm interested in is still compelling. It's still interesting. And I can see little bits of it come forward. Um, I sort of think of it, uh, I, I sort of think of it like a sea anchor. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you saw that in the news today, literally they found Shackleton's ship no. under the ice. Yeah, they discovered literally the ship and there are these incredible pictures of it. And I was a huge, I was a huge Shackleton fan. But in the, I mean, the most amazing part of the Shackleton trip is this voyage they make off of Antarctica to South Georgia Island, 800 miles in the open ocean in this little tiny boat. And one of the things that uh, lets them get there is what's called a sea anchor, which is a chunk of sailcloth that's dragged in the water behind the boat and it lets the boat keep its heading. And the sea is, you know, huge waves and gales and all the craziness. But because that sea anchor sits below, it maintains its, its heading. Um, it holds the boat on course. Uh, and so for me, I think of the novel writing as kind of a sea anchor, uh, a, a below the froth sort of way down deep. I'm, I hope, plugged into some very fundamental energies about what's interesting in the world and what it means to be alive and, and how the world moves forward or doesn't move forward. And I don't know, maybe another year or two, it'll be out and we'll see whether, whether that's the case or not, but uh, it, it keeps, it stays alive now. How do you, how do you make time for both? I had a fascinating conversation with Dory Clark, um, crazy author, Thinker Top 50 and her latest book is, it's called, um, it's called Playing the Long Game. And she talks about exactly that, that, you know, we have the things that need to get done in the day, the, the screaming urgencies, the the trends that are shifting now that require a conversation now because the conversation will be different tomorrow. And then we have for us, for a sense of spaciousness, for a sense of, of um, moving forward over the long term, we have this long game that we're playing and it might be investing in our passions. It might be following a storyline that we've been following. It might be working on a side project or a side hustle. How do you make space for both of those things? Because I know for me, it's my creative life that bleeds out when I'm in the middle mm -hmm. of the froth. I can get very involved mm -hmm. in the froth. Mm -hmm. I, I'm going to answer this the same way I answered your last question, which is poorly. <laughs> um, and and I don't think that it's, um, you know, I don't, I, I, I haven't had the, the, the discipline to say I'm going to write an hour every day or um, or anything like that. There have been months, um, huge chunks of time where nothing has happened because uh, I was essentially building a startup or, you know, in those thousand airports. Um, but for me, the book didn't die, you know, and I would think I hadn't thought about it for a long time. And then I would read a book and some line would speak to me or some image would come. And it was just so clearly connected to the same story and a little piece builds up and a little piece builds up. And you know, and, and now I've got 90,000 words of pieces, which is long enough mm. for a book, but it needs massaging and cohesion. And COVID's actually been really good for that, uh, 
uh, I had a studio and I got in the studio regularly and I made much more progress than mm -hmm. I've made in a long time. And so we'll see what happens when we get to RTO, but hopefully I can squeeze the book out before, uh, before the world spins up too crazily again. But there's, there's something beautiful in there about the charge. How do you know whether to let an idea live or die or let it go? And does it still have charge for you? Is there still a current mm -hmm. to it? something that's pulling you to it is it still speaking to you or are you just finishing it because my god i am I'm, i am gonna finish because i said i would it's uh winston churchill had a great line about that he said a book uh starts out as a mistress becomes a lover turns into a wife becomes a monster and eventually must be slain and i think that's a piece right it's very easy <laughs> to fall in love with the idea of it and there is a certain point i'm not quite at the monster stage but i'm in the late like i need to wrestle it down and, and get it done well let's i mean to come to a close uh, if there's if there's a piece of of guidance or a a thought that you want to leave anybody who's listening right now that is wrestling, let's use that word wrestling with this new age of storytelling, and as you said, it's a whole new world right now that we're entering into that's moving just as rapidly, and the rules are just as unpredictable. What would you what would you leave them with if they were going to write one thing down on a post it note and put it on their desk? Uh, I would say uh, experimentation is the best practice. Mm -hmm. By the time things are digested out into a repeatable pattern, a lot of the elements about the pattern have changed. And so that front edge is always going to be not vanilla ice cream, but another flavor and the new piece. So experimentation is the best practice. Keep trying different flavors of ice cream. <laughs> or things that aren't ice cream. <laughs> well, Ben, thank you. I have no doubt that you and I will be talking in the middle of another weather condition, probably 12 months. 12 months from now, hopefully it's a pleasant one, but it is always pleasant to see your face and to have you on the show. Thanks for coming back. Great to see you. Great to catch up. Glad that was not kind of catastrophe this time, but just rain and snow and a little bit of flooding and, and we'll see you again soon. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and have seized hold of at least one tool, idea, or mindset that will help you start raising your own level of influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your journey or would just love a roadmap to becoming the most influential voice, idea, or brand in your space, then I have good news. You can now download the latest updated version of my ebook, The Influencer Code, from my website, juliemasters.com. Also, there's a link in the show notes. Just pop in your email address, and I promise I will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in my now 20-plus years of doing this work, not to mention the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found to be hands-down the most valuable when it comes to immediately lifting your ability to make an impact. Download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope it makes a massive difference in both your career and your business. Thank you always to my co-founder and the main brain behind this podcast, Lauren Kelly. You kick my butt in all the right ways. Thank you for making it happen. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode.